Be seated. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians. We are back in Philippians, and what a joy it is to be able to say, turn in your Bibles to Philippians. I loved our summer series to the Psalms, and I heard very encouraging feedback on it, so I think that we might make that a tradition for a while uh, to go through the Psalms. I don't know how to break down all the psalms into summer weeks, and I don't know how many years it would take for us to get through all the psalms. Keith would know the math on that one, too, so he, you can talk to him afterwards, and he'll let you know. Uh, but we could probably at least take, I don't know, six, seven years to go through the psalms, maybe more at the rate we were going. But we are going to dive back into this letter, the book of Philippians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. We're going to dive back in to basically it's a part of a sentence so it would be unwise for us just to jump right back to where we were we were in philippians chapter 4 verse 4 we had just finished that before we took our break for the summer so what we are going to do before we dive back in there we are going to dive back there and we're going to take a little while because chapter 4 is all application of what has been preached so we took broad sweeping passages to get one main point one main thought we would hunker down here and there, but mainly, even as we go through a little bit of a review, you'll see we took broad sweeping passages to get the full picture and lay the foundation, big bricks that we could lay a foundation for. And now that we are kind of putting the finesse, the finishing touches on this house of theology and uh, practical living, we're going to get to the practical aspects of this letter in chapter four. And so we're going to start connecting them to what has been said and slow down and Take them as they come, as each command would come to us. But before we jump back into chapter 4, I wanted to just remind us, review where we've been, uh, review what we have studied thus far, and start from the beginning of that. So before we even dove into the book of Philippians, we had to start where the book began, where the church began, uh, the first church plant uh, in the city of Philippi. Do you remember where that's found in the Bible? Acts chapter 16. So we studied in Acts 16. Uh, You remember we looked at the three most unlikely candidates for planting a church. You had Lydia, who was the businesswoman and had it all together and uh, decides to pursue um, loving the Lord and following him with everything that she has. And then you have the slave girl, complete opposite in uh, economic status, in cultural status, in sociological status. Everything was different about her, demon-possessed whereas Lydia was already reading the Bible, not quite knowing what it was saying, and God saved the demon-possessed slave girl, and then lastly the jailer, kind of the uh, middle class, really couldn't care less about what's going on, just does his job to go home and watch the game, and he uh, is spoken to by God uh, through Paul and is saved. And so those three converts are the three pillars of the beginning of the church in Philippi, Paul loves them, and he's writing this letter to them. I gave you four reasons way back when, almost a year ago, to why, uh, for why we were going to study uh, this letter. And the reasons were as follows. Number one, Paul loved this church. I would say that this is probably Paul's favorite church. The church in Philippi is a church that Paul is gushing over. He loves all of the churches, but one of the things that he loves about this church is its maturity in the faith. He's not correcting any doctrinal error. 
He's correcting practical things that they're struggling with, but there's no doctrinal problems that he has to correct like in Galatia or in the church in Corinth. Number two, not only did Paul love this church because it was a picture of maturity and we can learn how to grow as well, but this letter is all about unity and joy. It's all about those two aspects of our Christian life, our Christian walk. Paul is encouraging this church to be unified and to be joyful. And if there are two things that will destroy a church and destroy a church plant, it would be disunity and it would be a sense, a lack of joy or a sense of anger or bitterness or frustration and dissension. So number three, we see Paul loved the church. This is all about unity and joy. And number three, this book roots practical exhortation and practical living in deep theological truths. There's such a disconnect in modern evangelicalism that, oh, we don't want to study deep doctrine. We want to study practical things. But you can't understand how to live out practical truths if you don't have the deep doctrine. And Paul clearly demonstrates that in this letter. And then finally, this book, number four, points us to Christ. And it has and it will continue to do so. Even this morning, it will point us to Christ. So turn to chapter one. Chapter one, we're going to just kind of work through where we've been thus far in our study. Paul began verses 1 through 2, looking at where the church began. We went to Acts 16. He talks about how he is a slave of Christ, and he's writing to all the saints, including overseers and deacons, because there's maturity and growth. And he loves this church, and he desires that this church uh, would follow the Lord in every single way. And his love for what God is doing in the church shows itself in verses 3 through 8, with three responses that Paul gives to seeing God's work in the people around him. He gives thanksgiving for God's work. He has confidence that since God is working in them, verse 6, that God will continue to work in them, and he has affection for them. You remember uh, verse 8, God is my witness. I long for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. What are those affections? What do they look like? They're the same affections that made Jesus go to the cross on your behalf. That's how Paul says he loves this church. Then in verses 9 through 11, continuing on this prayer, he gives four uh, specific aspects that he's praying for this church. He prays that they would live lives full of love in verse 9, that they would live lives full of wisdom, they would live lives full of integrity, and live lives full of fruit, having been filled, verse 11, with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Then in verses 12 through 18, he starts dialoguing about his own situation, about where he's come from, about the suffering and persecution that he's going through. And he shows that his paradigm is different to see and to understand the suffering and the persecution that he is going through. And we saw four ways that his paradigm over suffering shifts. Way number one, he sees suffering as a means of advancing the gospel. Number two, he sees suffering as a means of personally sharing Christ with those who do not believe. And you remember that very clearly. He says that all of the guards are hearing the gospel. He's chained to these Roman guards. I'm fine with his sharing the gospel with them. It's totally fine. As I'm in prison, the gospel is not in chains. Number three, he sees suffering as a means of encouraging the saints in verse 14. And he sees, number four, suffering as a means of rejoicing in Christ. It brings God glory and thus brings him greater joy. So, his kind of testimony of how he's been suffering, he says it's not bad. God is getting the glory and Jesus is being exalted. And that's why he says in verse 18, What then? Even if people are speaking out against me while I'm in prison, 
It doesn't matter. Only that in every way, whether in a false pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, I will rejoice. I want Jesus to be proclaimed. Then we see in verses 18 through 26, really the mission statement of Paul's own life. And we kind of took it as our own mission statement as a church. Um, He wants to exalt Jesus Christ above all things. Uh, Verses 18 through 20, we see that Jesus uh, should be exalted. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. My one ambition is that Jesus would be exalted. I want him to be exalted. And the way that he does that, number two, we looked at in verses 21 through 24, what we have here on the banners, that we need to embrace Jesus as a treasure better than life itself and see death as a means of treasuring him more since we get to be with him. And then number three, we saw in that sermon that we get to encourage others to find their joy in Jesus above all things. That's what we try to do here at Christ Bible Church. So Um, He is kind of moving from his own personal testimony to his own personal mission statement, if you will, of why he lives his own life. And then he says, you should live that way as well. Verses 27 through 30, he is telling them, this is how you live that way, to treasure Jesus more and to live out uh, your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Verse 27, this is what you must do. You must do four things. You must stand firm with one spirit. You must strive with unity for the gospel. You must steadfastly endure opposition, and you must suffer with joy. And we looked at those four aspects. If you live those out, you will be walking and conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then he turns in chapter 2 to the real reason why he's writing. He's praying for the church and thanking God for the church. He's giving them an update on how he's doing. And then he's praying, or he's turning kind of a corner to say, this is my prayer for you, that you would be unified that you would have humility, that you would not be puffed up and be proud and be exalted in your own eyes, but have utter humility. That's the goal, and that obviously from chapter 4 is the problem in this church. They're struggling with unity. There is divisiveness. And so Paul says, if there is any encouragement, literally since chapter 2, verse 1, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there's consolation of love, since there's fellowship in the Spirit, since there's affection and compassion, since the gospel has taken root in your lives, you need to be of the same mind. You need to be of the same mind. Verse 3 of chapter 2, you cannot uh, be selfish. You cannot puff yourself up and live for yourself. So we saw in these early verses of chapter 2 the foundation of our unity, the gospel, the cross. We saw the effects of the cross in our life, and we saw the enemies of unity, selfishness, and uh, vain conceit, empty glory. And then we looked at how to combat that. And that's where Paul just launches into Jesus's example of utter humility. If you want to be unified together and the enemies of unity are pride and vain glory, then we need to figure out how to combat pride and vain glory. And the ways to do that is to look to Jesus and how he lived his life. And so we spent a lot of time in these verses, verses 5 Uh, really through 11, of the glory that Jesus had, the preeminent glory, and then uh, the condescension to earth and humbling himself and then being exalted, um, all as a purpose of trying to see how to humble ourselves as Jesus humbled himself. Then he moves on to encouragement. Uh, We need to live this out, and we should be commanded, as he does in verse 12, to live out sanctification. We spent a long time talking about sanctification in verses 12 and 13, but He encourages us in that to say, you need to work, but God's working as you work. You work, God works together. 
And we kind of left it as, as a mystery as it is, but he moves on to a test case to kind of say, this is one area where you need to work out your sanctification. Verses 14 all the way down to 18, he says, don't grumble, don't complain. There are a number of reasons why you can't do that. And he, ha- he has as one of his main goals, instead, hold fast the word of life. Verse 16, um, you must rejoice with me. Don't grumble, but rejoice. Then he moves to more examples. He's given an example of himself in suffering and how to rejoice. He's given an example of Jesus in his humility. And then he gives us an example in verses 19 through 30 of Timothy and Epaphroditus and their example of godly living. So he's just trying to set the stage and he's making it uh, ever more pregnant to try and get ready to blow up and show us this is how you must live practically. And here are all the examples of how to do it. Chapter 3, we got to amazing truth that following Jesus and turning to the gospel. Chapter 3 is all about the gospel, that you can't trust in your own good works. You can't trust in yourself. There is no amount of goodness that you can do to earn heaven. The, even the goodness in you will never burn off the bad works that you have. Once you sin once, you are condemned to hell forever. And if you try to earn your way to heaven, or if you try to work off your bad works, you are futile in your attempts, and they will profit you nothing And that's why he says, verse 7 of chapter 3, whatever things were gained to me, all of the things that I had, I was circumcised the eighth day, I was of the nation of Israel, I was the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, I was perfect in every aspect, but all those things that I could call gain, I throw them away and call them loss for the sake of Christ. And I view everything as loss in view of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's the goal. I want to know him and be like him. He really moves all the way through that till verse 16 Uh, or through verse 16, and then verse 17, he says, you need to live the same way, church. He says, brethren, let's pick it up in chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, brothers and sisters, join in following my example. I've laid out my example of Christ-like living, living to exalt him, to treasure him. You need to do the same thing. Humble yourself and rejoice. And observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. So he says, Follow my example, but I'm not there to live it out in front of you anymore because I'm in jail. But there are, there are those in your midst that live it out. So follow their example. Follow their pattern. And he says, verse 18, Many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. But instead, don't be like them. Be like the citizen of heaven that you are. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, because of that paragraph, and specifically because of the plea that you are a citizen of heaven, and one day you will be with God in heaven forever with a perfect body, Paul says, therefore, I want you to do things. I want you to live differently. And this is where it got practical. I want you to live differently. This is where we will pick it up from where we ended last, uh, I think it was June. Paul said, you need to stand firm. You will waver as believers. You will waver and be unstable in your walk, in the way that you plant your feet. You need to stand firm. And he's going to give several different ways in which we must stand firm. And he started in verse 1, and I love how he started this way, and this is where we start as we were looking at these commands. 
He says, I'm, I'm about to give you commands. The church doesn't even know that yet, but this is how he stacks it up. He says, therefore, and that Greek word is always looking back to the past, because of what I just said, this is what I want you to do. It's literally, therefore, stand firm. But he puts a bunch of loving, encouraging, softening, helpful words. Look at what he says. He says, therefore, my beloved. So these are the ones that I love. My brothers, my sisters, these are my family members. The ones that I long to see. I wish I could be with you. I want to be in your presence. You are my joy. The ones that bring me great joy. He can be in a jail cell and be smiling because he's thinking about the church. My crown. You are the ones that when I get to the finish line, you will be my prize because I did not run in vain. You have heard the gospel, believed the gospel, lived out the gospel, and will prove that I didn't live my ministry out in vain. You are my crown. Stand firm in this way, my beloved. He says, beloved, two times, the ones that I love. And we talked about the practical application of that in confrontation. If you ever have to call somebody out, like Paul is doing here, he's going to call people out by name. If you ever have to call people out by name, how do you do it? Say, I love you. I love you. I love being with you. You're the person that I smile when I think about you. When I think about all God is doing in you, I just can't help but smiling. I know that you love the Lord. I know that you're growing in him. I know that you're pursuing him. And I do have some things that I want to say. But even as he says them, I love how he said in verse 3, this doesn't mean that you're not saved. Your names are in the book of life. I know you're saved. He talked about the sandwich principle. Make sure that as you confront somebody, you do it with grace on both sides. Grace and love on both sides. So he stacks it up to tell them, I want you to stand firm in the Lord. I want you to stand firm. We saw two other passages in Colossians 1.23 and Colossians 2.7 where he says the same thing. Continue in the faith, firmly rooted and established. Be firm in your footing. We talked about how footing is so important to a soldier and an athlete. And those two metaphors, those two analogies Paul is always using, that we are soldiers of Christ and we are athletes running a race. He talked about how even golfers have cleats because footing is apparently that important that as you stand still, you still need cleats. And so Paul says, these are, think of it as a shoe that you have and it has no cleats on the bottom of it and you need spikes to give you firm footing. And he says, this is the way that you take a spike, put it into your shoe and gain firm ground, firm footing in the Lord. Stand firm in this way in the Lord, my beloved. We looked at two already, two ways in which we are called to stand firm. Two cleats, if you will, that we can screw into our shoes that will give us a firm footing. The first we found in verses 2 and 3. I urge Yodia, I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are are in the book of life. How do you stand firm, Paul? Number one, you do it by reconciling together, living in harmony together. These two women called out by name, we don't know exactly what they're dealing with, but we know what it's not. We don't know what's causing the argument, but we know what is not causing the argument. It's not a theological issue. If it was a theological issue, what would Paul have done? He would have said, I've heard you guys are thinking this is true from the Bible, this is true from the Bible. 
He would have either said, this person has it right and you're wrong, or he would have said, both of you are wrong and this is what's true. He would have corrected doctrinal error or theological error, but since there is no theological error, he's not correcting it. So this is some area of difference, whether it's the color of the carpet, whether it's the way the music is played or the decibel level of the music. This is just a disagreement with how things should be done. And we have those in our church. We have those in every church. And Paul says, please live in harmony. If you do not live in harmony, you will be unstable in the way that you live your Christian life. You will waver. Why? Because people will have things against you. You will be always on the defensive and you won't be able to live in harmony together. And I love the way that he encourages them. Your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You are clearly saved. You've struggled in the gospel with me. I love how he says, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the gospel. Uh, even in Family Bible Hour, we've been talking about women and their role in ministry. And this is a great verse to say they stood shoulder to shoulder with Paul in gospel ministry. And Paul says, I know that you love the Lord. Now please live out Christ-like unity and love. Please fight for that. We talked about how to do that. We talked about how we must understand that resolving conflict is utterly important. We must have short accounts. We must, even if we think there's something that somebody might have against us, the Bible says we need to go. Why? Because these things blow up. We must live in harmony. If we're not living in harmony, we will be unstable, spiritually speaking, and things will be able to knock us uh, down. We need to see how serious this is. Don't just sweep it under the rug and think um, time will heal all wounds. Deal with it. Deal with it. Well, it's hard work. That was the second point. We said, yeah, it is. Work at it. You must work. Race to reconcile. You must work at personal reconciliation with others. And number three, we said, if it's too difficult between the two of you, get a third party involved. That's why I love Paul saying, bring others here, true companion and Clement. Work together with these two women to fix this issue. And that's not weakness, that's strength to say, we really need to work on this and we can't do it on our own. Please help us. So the first area that we must have to be spiritually stable, to have our footing firmly rooted in the gospel, to stand firm in the Lord is to live in harmony, be reconciled together. The second was found in verse 4, that we must rejoice in all circumstances. So live in harmony and rejoice in all circumstances. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I love how this comes right off the heels of reconcile with one another. If you rejoice instead of looking at what the problems that you have are and saying, oh, I wish this was different, but rejoiced about it, the problems would go away. You wouldn't have an issue. You know what? You can make the color of the carpet neon green. I don't care. Go ahead. I will rejoice in the Lord, not rejoice in the color of the carpet. I'm rejoicing in the Lord. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, rejoice. We gave two different definitions of joy that are two of my favorite definitions. One was shorter. It's the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Joy is when you know God is in control. You can rejoice in his sovereignty and smile about what's going on because you don't have any reason to worry. And we're going to talk about that next week, about worrying and being anxious. The second definition was where we ended the last time we were in this book. And I passed out on our first Thursday night gathering at the Hodgson's house. I passed out the full um, outworking of this definition. It's a long one. 
joy is a gift from God to those who believe the gospel being produced in them by the Holy Spirit as they receive and obey the word of God and as they go through great trials and fix their hope on future glory. So be reconciled and rejoice always. That's the longest introduction I've ever given to any sermon. Now we get to dive in. Continuing with, how are we to stand firm? Again, Paul, how do we stand firm? You're commanding us to stand firm. That's why he says, in this way. These are the ways, and they will go all the way down to verse 7. These are the ways that you will stand firm. Way number one, live in harmony. Live in harmony. Way number two, rejoice together. Rejoice in the Lord. Way number three, that we must have to be firmly rooted in the Lord, to be spiritually stable, is found in verse 5, and it is this. Be known for a gentle spirit. Be known for a gentle spirit. Now, that's a very careful way of saying that because of the way that Paul says it. I could say have a gentle spirit, But that's not even what Paul says. Verse 5, let's read it together. It's, let your gentle spirit be known to all men the Lord is near. So it's passive. It's let it be known. So obviously you have it, but that's not what he's saying. Having it is not enough. You can't let it be known if you don't have it, but you must have it and it works itself out so that it becomes your reputation. It becomes what you're characterized by. You are known by all men for your gentleness. My Bible has spirit in italics. That means that that word is uh, supplied to kind of give us an understanding of what it is. It's, liter- it's literally in the Greek, let your gentleness be known to all men. Can I ask you, what, what is it that you desire to be known for? What do you want written on your tombstone? What do you want said about you at your funeral? What do you want to be known for? Paul would say one of those things that you should desire to be known for is gentleness, is gentleness. So we have to ask the question, what is gentleness? What does this mean? How can we define it? Just three points this morning. We're going to look at the definition of what gentleness is. We're going to look at the motivation of why should we care about this. And we're going to look at the application of how do we actually live it out. Okay? Definition, motivation, application. What is Gentleness. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this because this is a very challenging Greek word to translate. Epiakes is the word in Greek. Let your epiakes be known to all men. Your Bibles, probably, if we had a poll of what that translation is in your Bible, we'd probably come up with four to five different words for that word gentle. Gentle spirit, gentleness, humility, meekness several different translations of that word. And when we have that, when we see that in the Bible, when you're reading through a passage and then you read it in another translation and that word is different, that means that word is tricky to translate, right? That's a very challenging word to translate. One of the reasons why it's challenging is because it's rarely used elsewhere in the New Testament, specifically by Paul. It's only used three times. Once here in Philippians 4, once in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 3, and once in Titus 3, one and two. Let's actually turn there. We have enough time. Turn to First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy chapter three, verse one. Paul uses this word, epia case. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, 
prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, and here we go, or pugnacious, but instead gentle, epiakes, peaceable, free from the love of money. So that word gentle, my Bible says gentle, it's contrasted with being pugnacious, picking a fight, wanting to argue, wanting to get up in somebody's face and be disagreeable. That's the first place that uh, outside of Philippians 4 that Paul uses this word. So it's in contrast to um, trying to start a fight, pick a fight, just get angry about little things. Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 is the second place where Paul uses this outside of Philippians 4. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, there's a word, to be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So be peaceable. Don't malign anyone. Be peaceable. Be gentle. James chapter 3, verse 17 has this word that teaches us that wisdom that comes down from God teaches us how to be gentle. It's in James chapter 3, verse 17, and also in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, Peter uses it to say there are reasonable, nice, gentle bosses and masters, and there are unreasonable, mean, uh, angry bosses and masters. And he says, he uses that word case. So those are the four times outside of Philippians that we see this word, and we see that it's, it's the opposite is angry or agitated or trying to pick a fight. Let me give you a couple other synonyms. These are found, I, I pulled all of these words from other translations, okay? So these are in Bibles somewhere. Some of them are Bibles we wouldn't use, but just to help us understand how crazy this word can be translated, here are synonyms from other Bibles for this word, gentle spirit, epiakes. Here's some other words. Peaceful, content, relaxed, sweet reasonableness. I like that. Graciousness, big-heartedness, tender-hearted, forbearing, kindness, gentleness, which is what my Bible translates it as, meekness, and mildness. Or said in the negative way, this is not being violent, not feisty. I like that one. Do not be feisty. Not combative, not harsh, not abrasive. That was another good translation. Do not be abrasive. Um, John MacArthur says it this way. Sweet, reasonableness, generosity, goodwill, friendliness, magnanimity, charity toward the faults of others, mercy towards the failures of others, indulgence to the failures of others, leniency, big-heartedness, moderation, forbearance, and gentleness are some of the attempts to capture the rich meaning of epiakes. Perhaps the best corresponding English word is graciousness, the graciousness of humility, the humble graciousness that produces the patience to endure injustice, disgrace, and mistreatment without retaliation, bitterness, or vengeance. It's ultimately contentment. So, if we can define this word, gentleness, this is how I define it. My favorite definition for let your gentle spirit for FEA case is this, gracious humility. Let your gracious humility be known to all men. Gracious humility. Aristotle actually uses this word in extra-biblical Greek, obviously. But he uses this 
with the um, A in front of Greek words. You remember when you put an A, like atheist is um, theist, or theism is belief in God. A negates it, right? So that A negates whatever it's in front of. Um, so an atheist is somebody who does not believe in God, believes there's no God. Aristotle actually uses epiakes, and he throws that A in front of it, uh, when he's talking about strict justice, not hearing people out, not dealing with things patiently, but just coming down with the verdict, harsh, fast, black and white, done. Strict justice. He uses that uh, epia case with the A on the front of it to say this is not being gracious and humble and patient. This could be said, uh, similar to our expression, cut people slack. Let your cutting of people slack be known to all men. Patience. One commentator says it this way involved in EPA cases the willingness to yield one's personal rights and to show consideration and gentleness to others. It is easy to display this quality towards some persons, but Paul commands that it be shown towards all. That would seem to include Christian friends, unsaved persecutors, false teachers, anyone at all. We could say this is considerate courtesy, respect. It's the opposite of a harsh attitude. The person who says, I can't believe so-and-so did that. The person who goes, I love when I read it in, um, in books, in narratives, uh, the word H-M-P-H. Humph. That is not F-E-A case. To get up in arms about something. That is not gentleness. There's a misconception about gentleness, and I think this hit home, this hits home for men especially. Jared Wilson says it this way, gentleness is neither effeminacy or passivity. So gentleness is not being effeminate and it's not being passive. And then he says this, and I think it's key to hear this, thinking that it is so, thinking that gentleness is just merely being effeminate or being passive, thinking that it is so is why some men don't want it. Gentleness is just being effeminate. I don't want to be effeminate. I want to be a man. So I don't want to be gentle. Or it's why some men think that they have it when they don't. They, they think, I don't react. I don't react to things. I'm not angry. I'm just chill out, man. I, I'll just relax. But they're passive. They don't react to anything. They don't lead in any department. So they think that they're gentle, but they're not. It's not being effeminate. It's not being passive. It is gracious humility. Let your gracious humility be known to all men. Why? Why, Paul? Why should we care about letting our gracious humility be known to everyone around us? Why should we care about that? Well, he gives us an explicit reason, and it's four very clear words. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. This is point number two, our motivation for a gracious humility It's because the Lord is near. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that the Lord is near? It could mean two things, right? You probably can think of these two things. It could either mean that God is near, the Lord is near in proximity. He's close to us. We would say it's his omnipresence. He's present everywhere. He's near to you. And so you should be gracious to others because he's near to you. An example of this is when 
uh, you are in an argument, not like any of you argue at home. But if this ever were to happen, so none of you know what this is like, but if, if you ever were to get into a fight with a family member and it starts escalating and you're kind of raising your voice and saying things that you shouldn't be saying, and then you hear a knock on your door, how do you open that door? You don't open it with the same expression and the same anger and the same passion that you had when you were talking to your sibling or you were talking to your parents or you were talking to your spouse. You instantly do a little hmm, action, open the door. Oh, hi, how are you? I'm so glad you're here. Or over the phone, same thing. You could be yelling at the top of your lungs, the phone rings, and it's not, hello. It's, oh, hi, who's this? I think that that's one aspect of what Paul might be saying here. The Lord is close in proximity. Remember that he is there. He's knocking on the door all the time, so to speak. He hears the way that you interact with others. So do not interact with harshness, with quickness, with a response that has anger or bitterness or any sense of contempt behind it because that would not be gracious nor humble. You have to put these two things together and be patient and gracious and humble. So that could be one aspect of the Lord being near. I actually think it's more the second aspect, which would be the Lord is imminent in his return. He's near to coming back to us. So it's either near in proximity or it's near in time. He's near to coming back. I actually think that it's that for a number of reasons. For the sake of time, you just need to know that the the times when this phrase is used in the Bible, it's almost always used to speak of, except for two times, it's almost always used to speak of, he's coming back quickly. And so I think this is probably more he's coming back quickly. Not like the first point doesn't matter. I think it does, and it can be an encouragement to us. But I think Jesus' return is helpful to keep us gracious and humble. And here's why. Two, Two reasons. Number one, if you are wronged, if you are offended, and you are gracious and humble in just wearing the wrong. I'm offended. I'll turn the other cheek. I will wear the wrong. I'll wear the offense. I'll forgive. Jesus is coming back to avenge that wrongdoing. He's coming back. He will come back and avenge you for the offense that was done against you. He will. He'll balance those scales out. You will be avenged. And whoever wronged you will be punished. So that's a positive understanding of Jesus coming back. But remember, secondly, Jesus is coming back and he will judge you. How would you desire for Jesus to judge you? You want him to be quick and strict in his justice, like Aristotle uses that word, a epiakes? Or would you rather him be gracious and humble with you? He's coming back, he'll avenge the wrongdoing, and he will judge you. How do you want to be judged? Judge others the way that you desire to be judged. We know that Jesus will judge graciously because of his work on the cross, so we should too be gracious with others. The Lord is near. That is the main motivation that Paul gives. He is near. This is why we should live this out. I want to give you just a couple other passages uh, And with them, other motivations. Uh, Another motivation is that gracious words lead to greatness. Proverbs, just write these down. Proverbs 22, 11. This passage is so helpful that the one who speaks with grace and humility 
that person can stand before kings and will be invited into, into the palace of kings. That pers- it's sweet to be around those people. And so Solomon says in Proverbs 22, Be gracious, my son, with your words. Because if you're gracious, you will be liked, understood, and valued even by kings. You'll be known by kings. A second motivation, not only do gracious words and, and humble reactions lead to our own greatness, uh, but Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 12 says that words from a wise man are humble and tempered and gracious. So we could say the opposite. If wise men's words are tempered and gracious and humble, then fools' words are hot-headed, agitated, easily angered, and abrasive. So those are a couple of the passages that remind us a motivation for why we should have this ability to respond with gracious humility. But lastly, in our motivation for this command, one of the motivations that I just want to get inside of Paul's mind, he's saying that this brings spiritual stability. He's saying that if you do not have this quality, you will be unstable spiritually. Why? Well, I think in context, you will start arguing with other people. I guarantee you that Yodia and Syntyche were not letting their gentle spirit be known to all men. Because if you are gentle, it doesn't matter. You can bend over backwards for somebody and say, go ahead, have your way. I don't care. I want to be gracious and humble. And if this is really what floats your boat, then do it. As long as it's not sinful, go ahead. I don't need to get my way. I don't need to fight against you. Even if it's something that I don't necessarily enjoy, I will gladly go along with you because I want to be gracious. I want to be compassionate. I want to be humble. This roots itself in chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or from vain, empty glory. Put others, consider others as more important than yourselves. So I think this aspect of spiritual stability is obvious because if we, if we have this, we will be in, in many uh, less, fewer issues with people. We will be living out harmony with one another. And we will be rejoicing because we won't be bickering about that person thinks that something should be done such and such a way and I don't agree with it. We won't be doing that. How will we be spiritually stable if we have gracious humility? When somebody desires to pick a fight, you instantly put that fire out. Gentle, gracious words turn away wrath. A gentle word spoken turns away somebody who is angry at you. It doesn't happen all the time, but ultimately it gets you out of a jam. It says, I would rather be at peace with you than fight for my right or my way. And so Paul says, if you want to be spiritually stable, if you want to stand firm in the Lord, you must have this. If you do not have this quality, and remember, it's not merely having the quality. That's not enough. You must have it. And it must so permeate everything you do, the way you look, the way that you speak, the way that you sound, your tone of voice, your personality, everything about you must be so permeated by a gracious humility that it is known to everybody around you. And we know people like this. We know people like this, that you just want to go to coffee with them because they just bleed this sense of they're so sweet and genuine and filled with compassion. I just want to hang out with them. Paul says we should all be known for that. That should be what we are characterized by. That should be our reputation. Gentle people are the people with the most joy and peace 
Matthew Henry says, it's because the comfort that a man has in governing himself is much greater than he could have in having people serve him and nations bow down to him. A gentle spirit, a gracious humility is governing yourself. When you want to break out, when you want to fight against something, when you want to stand toe-to-toe with somebody, you graciously submit yourself. You serve them and you take control. You govern yourself. So how do we do this? How do we apply this? How does this become our own? Because if Paul is ultimately saying, I want you to look like Christ, and this is a characteristic that was displayed by Christ. You remember so many examples in the Gospels, just one. Uh, remember when James and John, they actually send their mother. If you harmonize the two Gospel accounts, they send their mom to ask Jesus, I, I have a question for you, and before I ask it, I want you to tell me that you will say yes to whatever I ask. If anybody asks me that, I'm going to say, you're stupid. Why would I ever do that? Why would I ever just give you carte blanche, whatever you ask of me, I will do before you even ask it. That's just dumb. And if there's anybody in the history of the world that could have said, come on, guys. I've been with you for three years, and you're still asking stupid questions like that. It would have been Jesus. But he says this, and I love what he says. He says, what is it that you would ask of me? What is it that you would ask of me? That is epiatus. That is a gracious humility. Instead of going, how could you ask this? You know when people say things and you kind of feel sorry for them that they said that? You know? Oh, I, I really wish you hadn't have said it that way. I'm, I hope you understand how weird you're coming across. And that wasn't nice. A nice way to say it. It's responding to that with humility and graciousness. It's realizing we say that too. People think that about us when we speak. Oh, I can't believe he said it that way. So be gracious and humble with others. This is an easiness of spirit, Matthew Henry says. He has a great little book, by the way, called um, A Meek and Quiet Spirit. It's a little book. It's very helpful. And it's kind of on this with a a couple other passages. He says, Epiakis is an easiness of spirit. It accommodates the soul to every occurrence, and so it makes a man easy to himself and easy to all about him. It's easiness. It's, I'm not going to get up in arms. I'm not going to get agitated. So here's the application. How do we live this out? Let me just give you a couple points. Number one, to live out a gracious humility, you must first consider what usually provokes you to anger. What usually provokes you, and again, I say that, let me say it this way. What usually do you allow to provoke you? Sometimes we, we kind of think we have the right to be angry. Do you realize you never have to be angry, ever? If you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and you could, for the rest of your life, never be angry. You don't ever have to. And we, our words betray what we actually believe when we say, you make me so mad. You gave too much power to that other person. You allowed yourself to get mad. You don't have to get mad. Nobody can make you mad. But a lot of things in life, whether it's people or whether it's circumstances, we allow to provoke us. And so we must consider to apply a gracious humility to our own spirit. We must consider what we usually allow it to provoke us. For some, it might be the way that somebody says something. For some, it might be um, traffic. I think that that's probably one for all of us. We usually allow that to let gracious humility just fly out the window and leave our car. 
What is it that provokes you and that you usually succumb to instead of dealing with a gracious humility? Um, Can I ask you to do something? Here's a great way to live out gracious humility. With a graciousness of your spirit and with humility and teachability in your heart, ask your spouse, ask your kids, ask your friends and your coworkers, when I get mad, it's not if. Have you ever seen me mad? Don't ask that question. Do I ever get mad? I don't really do I? No. Ask, when I get mad, when the, t- when the times that you see me get mad, what is it usually relating to? Is it relating to the way I'm being treated by my boss? Is it related to the way I'm being treated by my coworkers? Is it the, the way that people underneath me aren't listening to me? What is it? We must zone in on why or what it is that provokes us And number two, we must understand or ask the question, why do we allow those things to provoke us? Why do we allow? We have to figure out what it is that we allow to provoke us, and then we have to ask the question, why is that the hot-button issue? Why do I get provoked over this thing? Genesis 4, 6, God asks Cain this question, and it's a question that we should ask any time we are angry. God asks Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? And here's the question. Can I give you just the, the heart question? This will target your heart. In the moment that you are sinfully angry and not living out a gracious humility, ask yourself two questions. Number one, what is it that I'm getting right now that I'm not wanting? What is it that I'm getting right now that I don't want? I'm angry about. I'm getting something and I don't want it. And number two, what is it that I'm wanting right now that I'm not getting? What am I wanting right now that I'm not getting? We need to figure out what provokes us or what we allow to provoke us, and then we need to figure out why. Why is this thing the thing that I get angry over? Because I'm wanting something that I'm not getting, or I'm getting something that I'm not wanting. I want to be able to just crash on the couch and not have to serve and not have to do anything. And somebody comes over and says, hey, can you please do this for me? I don't want to do that, and I get angry. Instead of gracious humility, what am I getting that I'm not wanting? I'm getting asked to do something that I don't want to do. What am I wanting that I'm not getting? I'm wanting to not do anything, and I'm having to do something. So ask the heart questions. Number three, consider what usually provokes you or you allow to provoke you. Number two, consider why you allow those things to provoke you. Number three, consider what your reaction should be once you get, and this is obviously should be done outside of these angry areas. We need to be in a state of peace, a calm state where we can um, logically, biblically, with a spirit-filled mind, think these things through, but we should consider what our reaction should be. I reacted this way, and I know that wasn't graciously humble. What should I do in the future? How should I react? Gentleness should calm our spirit. And gentleness should curb our tongue. Gentleness instructs us how we can serve others. It is intentional about not offending others, and it is intentional, if offended by others, to quickly forgive them. That's gentleness. Paul did this by becoming all things to all men. Remember, he said, I don't want to offend. I want to graciously serve, even though I have my rights to be able to say, I want to do things the way I want to do them, and I wouldn't be wrong in saying that. He says, I would graciously bow down to you and serve your needs. I'll serve you. Finally, number four, if you want to grow a gentle spirit, a gracious humility, if you desire to be known by this and grow this in your own heart, 
You have to, number one, figure out what usually provokes you, what you allow to provoke you. You have to figure out why that is the thing that you allow to provoke you. You have to consider what the reaction should be, how you should properly react. And number four, can I just plead with you? Delight yourself in the company of gentle people. Get yourself around gentle people. We all know them. And I believe that we have a lot of gentle people in proportion at Christ Bible Church to most churches. I think that we are graciously served by God through the individuals and uh, attenders of Christ Bible Church because I think that the majority are gracious in the way that they deal with things. Get yourself around them. Ask them these questions. See how when they deal with something, this is why we, we have to live life together. When you're living life together and you see something happen in somebody else's life that if it happened to you, you would blow up and they don't, ask immediately. Okay, I would have blown up over that comment. Wife said something to husband, I would have been angry at that. Why weren't you? Ask. Ask that question. Get yourself in the company of gentle people. Surround yourself with them and learn their ways so that you too can be known for being gracious. What are you known for? Are you known for your gracious tongue? Are you known for your kindness? Are you known to ooze patience and peace and compassionate tender-heartedness? Or are you known for being harsh, quick to judge? Just ask your family and they will honestly assess it with gracious humility. Finally, in conclusion, this is the way that we do it every single time. We look to Jesus. He is the perfect example of gracious humility. Though he was wronged and maligned and spit on and betrayed, he didn't malign back. He entrusted himself to the Lord and he was graciously humble. Matthew Henry says, If God should be as angry with me for every provocation as I am with those about me, what would become of me? If God were as angry with me as I am with everything that provokes me, what would become of me? You say, well, but you don't know how offensive some people's actions are. Can I just humbly and graciously say, I don't know if you know how offensive your actions are. Henry says it this way, they are careless in their observation and perhaps willful in their offense. These people that are provoking me, they're careless They don't care about me, and some of them are malicious and willful to offend me. You don't know how offensive they are, Patrick. I cannot be gracious and humble in response to them. And Henry says, oh, but am I not so the same to God? Yes, and am I not a thousand times worse? And yet God in his grace says, it's finished. It's forgiven paid in full so that we can go free. If you are to be spiritually stable and stand firm in the Lord, you must race to reconcile and live in harmony with others. You must do the work to be reconciled to all men. Secondly, you must rejoice in the Lord always, not in your circumstances, rejoice in the Lord. And third, you must be known for a gracious humility in everything you do to everyone around you. Father, we pray that this would be our desire this morning. I pray that your spirit would convict of times, maybe even this morning, coming to church, that we were not gracious and humble in our speech, in our words, in our body language. 
God, I know that I fail in this so many times. And so we desire to pray and plead with you to do this work in us that we struggle to do every single day. Take our lives, mold us, and let us be wholly set apart to you. And in whatever we do, may we be known for a Christ-like, gracious humility with those around us. Because we want to image you, because we want to stand firm in the Lord, because we want to be pleasing to our Savior. We pray in his name.